The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. Hello again, it's Jason Poblet with the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Thank you for your questions. Please keep them coming. All right, today we're going to talk about a serious subject uh, with someone who is an expert, more than an expert. She, she has lived it, has witnessed it, and it probably, for some of you, may be a, a difficult subject, but I think it's a necessary one, especially when you're um, trying to do justice in the world. You first have to know what you're combating. So today we have Holly McKay, who is a journalist, a foreign policy expert, a war crimes investigator, and frankly, she seems like an all-around just good people, uh, someone who has dedicated a good chunk of her life to looking at a darker side of humanity. She, for a while, was a Fox News uh, producer, but before we get to any of that, before we get to her journalistic career, I just want to read a little bit of what she has done, because she has been on the front lines of several major war zones and covered many humanitarian diplomatic crises in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, Turkey, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Burma. I like, she use, I like the fact that she uses Burma in her, in her bio and not Myanmar. We can talk about that later. Russia, East Africa, many places in Latin America, and um, has written several books, including one that we're gonna talk about today. So Holly, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. How's everything with you? Where are you, uh, where are you reaching us out to from? Right now, I'm with friends in Twin Falls, Idaho, and they're all uh, ju- jumping off bridges, base jumping, and I'm observing. <laughs> I base jumping. That that, I did it once. That was enough. I'm good for the rest of my life. I'll just watch. <laughs> okay, well, well, is it true? Before we get into your background, is it true that you, you uh, I've heard some from someone that you, you like Harley Davidson's? I do. I have a Harley. Yeah. You have a Harley. Um, Where, where'd you learn? I, I learned to ride my first motorcycle probably when I was about 16 and then didn't really do it. I lived in California, which would have been a perfect place to ride, but I didn't really ride there. And so when I moved to New York and the beginning of 2017, I decided I would uh, pick it back up. So I went up to the Bronx and did some mm. lessons and got my license and went and bought a bike. My Lord, you learn how to ride in the Bronx. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. So how, how did you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump into the some of the material here? You you were born in Australia, but then how did you find your way to uh, to America? So I was born in North Queensland and uh, was very dedicated to a ballet career, actually, from a very young age and ended up breaking my ankle. So that mm. kind of shattered Uh, a lot of the ambitions I'd had to sort of go to the Royal or continue that career. And so I ended up going back to university in Sydney. And then at the end, I just got very restless and decided that I wanted to finish my degree in New York. 
So I came in 2006 and randomly heard about these internships and I, I didn't, we didn't have those in Australia. So I didn't really even know what it was. And I was just applying in different places. I loved writing. I loved sort of the news cycle and that excitement. And I got a call from Fox, which was building up its, its digital empire, I guess, at that point. And I uh, started an internship and mm. at the end of that got up on a sponsorship and was moved to Los Angeles. And I think I was, I wasn't even 21. So my baptism by fire journalism career kind of started uh, very young and I, I had a column and I just was told just to go out there and do it. So that's kind of what I did. Where'd you get the, um, the gift or the passion for writing? Because you've written a lot of articles not just your books but you've written mm -hmm. articles essays uh, we're going to share the link with uh with our listeners so they can read back some of the stuff you've uh, written over the years but where did you find that passion for writing i had a very isolated childhood uh, especially in north queensland long stretches of time where i didn't see any other kind of human being beyond my sister and, and my parents and my grandparents so I think that fostered a really great love for reading and writing from a young age. I'd be alone in the room and just that was my entertainment. I mm. taught myself to to read a lot of books and just to be I had to be very creative. I had to sort of tap into my mind and, and find those stories. So that was always fostered from a young age. And then as I got older, I think I was just a deeply curious person. And I guess a little bit of a loner. So writing made sense to me as opposed to uh, being involved in something that required a bit more of a team. I liked the independence of being able to do things on my sort of schedule and timeline and have control of that. So it just sort of was a natural progression. And uh, I think it really spawned from a deep curiosity about the world and about people. And you also, your writing comes across, you, uh, you care deeply about the subject matter, but you also have this, I guess, technique where you get to know the people you're writing about quite well. And before we get to the book, why did you jump into a topic like genocide, for example? And, and I, I could see human rights, mm. but in the spectrum of things, that's extremely difficult subject matter. What, so what attracted you to that? Because I read somewhere again that you, from an early, an early age, you, you wanted to focus on that subject. I think I always had... I just hated bullies. I hated, mm. you know, in school, it, it was, I hated it, the idea of, of people sort of domineering and cliques and, and kind of pushing other people out. And I think I was always deeply incensed by that. And I guess as I got older, I had a lot of fire and I didn't always know where to put it. So I tended to be a little bit of a, a rebel <laughs> myself and I had to find a sort of a, a job or a place to put that energy to good use. And so when I really started to educate myself about a lot of these issues. And these are things that, that we don't really learn enough about in school, as far as I'm concerned. I felt that I, I'd lived a sort of a little bit of a sheltered life. And so when I'd started to expose myself to how most of the world really does live, uh, I was just shocked and, and horrified. And I, I felt that a lot of it needed to be brought to light. And as I started to dip into the subject, I think what I found was that the, the victims of these wars and the people caught in the crossfire will never see justice for what was done to them. As we know, the International Criminal Court is just so laborious and slow and rarely prosecutes. 
and a lot of the terrorists are going to get away with what they did and life is going to go back to normal, but it will never go back to normal for the people that have suffered. And so just in telling their story in having their story, especially exposed to an American audience, to them, that is a semblance of justice. And that is just a small a victory in, in all the pain that they've had to endure. And so I felt that if I could do that work, I should do that work. You know, your story is, you know, quite remarkable. And I think for listeners who don't know this, I, when she decided to go off and begin her journalism career, she did not only pick a difficult country, she chose the two most difficult places probably to go do this sort of work, Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, we're gonna get back to justice and I think we're going to weave it into here because it's important for folks to understand this is probably some of the most dangerous places for a reporter to go. And one of the organizations that the Global Liberty Alliance collaborates with is the Jane Foley Foundation. Mm. And you know, you know who Jane Foley is. And um, he was an American journalist, for those who don't know, video reporter. Uh, and, and as he was working as a freelance correspondent in, in, in Syria during the Syrian civil war, he was abducted and dragged into northwest Syria and eventually, unfortunately, was beheaded by uh, some folks who were just some really mean people uh, that Holly uh, spent time uh, reporting on eventually. Now, I think Jim was a, 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 maybe a, almost 10 years younger than you, um, but he jumped in there like you did. And this is great about Americans. You know, they go off and, and, and they do this wonderful work. People don't hear about it uh, to try and write some of the many injustices in the world. What drove you, and I, I, I think I know the answer, but I want you to know, I want you to tell us, I think it's the same thing that drove Jim. Uh, and I didn't know Jim Foley. I know his, his mom, I know the work they do at the foundation, but through them, I've, I've come to know him. Um, what drove you to go to a place like Afghanistan and Syria, knowing that your life was in, in danger? I think it comes back to this idea of really trying to understand a situation and we see uh, snippets on the news, we see a very macro picture and for me it's always been the way to understand a complexity is to go into the micro. We can look at statistics all day long, we can read reports, we can read uh, you know sanitized articles about sort of looking at how many bombs were dropped or how many hundred people were killed that day. But I think it's those deeply personal stories that that really enable us to understand a conflict and able, enable us to understand on a micro level through those micro lenses. So for me, I wanted to go and talk to individuals and understand it from their perspective. And I think that for me was just the way that I choose to tell a story. And I think that has a far deeper impact on, on audiences when they can relate to something uh, sort of very uh, visceral like that as opposed to just numbers and, and statistics. And that's the sort of journalism that I felt that I could bring back the best. You know, one of the things that's very challenging when people do, uh, even whether it's lawyers or human rights workers or, or journalists that choose this vocation uh, is exactly what you're saying, keeping people's attention. And one of the things that we stress in the, in the justice cycle, because it, it is a cycle, that the problems don't end for the victim when the, either the person has been saved or a body been recovered for a family, of course. But there's a cycle of justice. They have to get to the accountability phase, which is very challenging and a very difficult decision. But keeping people's attention, but more importantly, the people in power who can use the trust that's been given to them to 
advance the cause of justice. We mentioned the ICC. Um, there, there's many different mechanisms today that we didn't have 60 years ago. But as documented in your reporting, there's a lot of injustice in the world. In fact, there's genocide happening right now. Mm. What, after having seen death and horror the way you have so close up and you step back and, and you have, you're able to view it sterilely from over here, what, you know, what recommendations do you have about helping keep people's attention? Because it's very challenging right. to, to keep policymakers focused on this. And some of them want to avoid it. And obviously, you know, it is difficult, especially in these far-flung places. I think, first of all, as a journalist, my role is, is to bring as much awareness and detail to a situation as I can. Obviously, I'm not a policymaker. I can't change sort of the way that the trajectory goes, but I can bring awareness to it. So first of all, I think the media, and people often ask me, you know, world stories, they don't get it, you know, enough attention. They're kind of buried. And that's all very true. But what I found is that I think the news conglomerates don't give enough credit to the American people because when you present the story and you give it a great placement and you put it essentially in front of somebody's eyes, they are going to read it. And Americans are some of the most generous people uh, on the planet who really you know, will make a, a donation to a foundation or reach back out and ask me how they can help and what they can do to personally support a family that they've read about in one of my articles. And I'm always just blown away by it. And I think there is this big disconnect by this idea that everybody likes to say that you know, the American media will, uh, will always pri prioritize American news over world news. And I, I just think that we can do a better job of placing those world articles uh, a little bit more to the forefront and give Americans a little bit more credit for, for their care about the rest of the world outside our borders. So first of all, there's that. And then each of the other issues, I mean, as especially as it pertains to Iraq, I really think what we're missing is really great on the ground, I guess, uh, situation situational analysis. I know in my experience in a lot of these countries and our, our troops who we send over there to do this amazing work, a lot of them aren't sort of able to leave the wire. They can't leave the base. They can't go and interact with the people. And I think that gives a really limited view of the situation that is being encountered over there and that kind of street view. So I would like to see a little bit more, I guess, flexibility in enabling a broader channels of communication that the people that we send over there can kind of have that bigger reach. And I think that has been missing, especially since Benghazi. I've noticed it's it's locked down in a lot of these places for safety precautions, but I think we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle in doing that. What happens when, for example, when we're advocating on behalf of a hostage over here, or we have, in fact, we're advocating on behalf of two hostages now, one in Iran and one in Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens when a reporter, for example, and I've, I've had, we've had this happen a lot, where either journalist wants to cover the story, they write it, they do a lot of hard work, and then it gets to the editors and they say, sorry, not interesting enough. I've had that happen a lot. And it's frustrating when it happens for, I mean, I feel bad for all the work the, rep the, the reporters have done, the journalists have done, but then I wonder what What's, why does it have to compete for attention with so many other things? Or frankly, I find most of the stuff you see on the news, including a network that we may or may not have mentioned just now, 
non frankly it's nonsense stuff that i i don't watch i don't watch broadcast news anymore it, it's just because i don't i don't think it it's a good reflection of what's happening in the world i'm not saying you got to put bad stuff on there all the time not quite the opposite i think you do both but why do these why is it so tough sometimes to get airtime or 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 print time for these type of stories again i think it's this sort of long running narrative that americans don't care and that, that has been the, the case for decades. I, I, older colleagues of mine who worked in the Bosnian where I remember them complaining about the same thing and saying, oh, it's just so hard to get a cover story when Princess Di is doing something or there's sort of something else. But I really think, again, Americans do care and, and the media conglomerates don't give enough credit for it. I also think we've gone down this trajectory of clickbait. And mm. no matter sort of how, I really think all news organizations are guilty of it. It comes down to this, sort of salacious uh, headline. I remember when I was first learning to be a journalist, we were always told, you know, you don't put a question in the in the headline and clickbait was very much frowned upon. And I, I remember being an intern uh, it, at Fox when I was 20 and, and Roger Ailes talking to the interns and, and he was actually very firm about that. You present all signs and, and we avoid sort of the, the uh, incendiary headlines. But I think that's really gone to the wayside, especially with social media. And unfortunately, what I've also seen as probably heightened as a result of the pandemic and the fact that a lot of newsrooms have closed and people have been working remotely is sort of the aggregation model taking off. So people don't want to send reporters into the field anymore, not only just overseas, but you know, often in, in when situations are happening right in America for liability reasons and and I think we've created this sort of aggregation cycle where now news is just regurgitated and linked out to in articles with uh, with barely even a phone call to a police department. And I think that's a real shame because uh, we're losing, I guess, a whole generation of, of journalists to this idea of that you can sit at home and, and put your name on a byline and actually not really do anything. No, that's, well, some people think that, but... This is why we're talking to you, because I think folks not only have to buy your book, they should read all 400 plus pages of it and appreciate that this takes a lot of work and sacrifice. You could be doing anything else. You could be doing exactly that if you wanted to, but uh, you chose to go on the front lines where the, where the news was really happening and not just um, engaging in clickbaiting. I, I'm going to your book for a minute. Uh, and it's, uh, we'll, we'll provide a link to it, Only Cry for the Living. There's um, a few things I want to ask you about, but one of them, I'm going to read something to you. It just jumped at me. Uh, it's um, the chapter where you're getting into Ladies First from October of 2016. And we'll, we'll talk about Iraq and Yazidis in a minute, but mm. you, had, you had a section here where you talked about um, memory. And I'm curious what, what triggered that. You were walking into, a, I think it was your birthday. Mm. and you were heading out to a, a church and you ran into the um uh, it was it was a, a bomb church i'm not going to read all of it to you but you had a, a memory that just came back to that french priest mm. that, that had been uh beheaded in france what 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 trigger i was curious as to what triggered that and and and, and why because you, you said here months earlier uh, July 2000, July 26, ISIS assailants had attacked churchgoers in the sleepy town of Normandy in 
north of France. They stormed the 16th century church. I cannot pronounce that because I do not speak French. And slit the throat of a 85-year-old priest, Jacques Hamel, in broad daylight. And you said here you found yourself deeply impacted by this priest's death. What, what, what did you see in Baghdad that triggered that thought? I think it was really a compounded thing. I think for me, before I started covering this particular conflict, I mean, I've always, I've always been a Christian, but I was never really you know, practicing or, or regularly going to church. But I think when I started to meet so many uh, Christians in Iraq and and sort of the in Syria and just kind of the despair that they were living through, and the fear and the kind of running from their home and the fact that so many of them had left and, and their frustrations and not knowing what to do. And I think I just, I started to feel quite defensive for mm. what they were experiencing. And I started to feel their frustration on a much deeper level because I was just, you know, it, it felt so visceral and so sad to me that these people were being run out of their homeland and they really, it was it was awful to stay and then it was awful to go. And, and that was heartbreaking for me. And so I think, ISIS really brought to the limelight their despair and the despair many minorities were feeling. And I think that memory was just kind of triggered by a compounded experience of just hearing these stories over and over again. And I, I just felt, I felt very strongly that it's something that shouldn't be, be lost on, on the radar of Washington and that we do need to, to really stand up for Christians in the Middle East. We're really in a a very challenging position of, of whether to stay in or whether to go. And I think that in either way, it's, it's incredibly sad to me that we've come to this. You spent, I think from 2014 to last year, um, you spent time, was that the entire time in Iraq? Or would you, no, would you I was going back and back and forth. So I'd go for forth. chunks of time and then chunks. come back. So, yeah. All right. You, you said somewhere you were interviewed that, I will never know what it's like. And this goes back to that period. You said you never know what it's like to be born and raised in a place like Afghanistan, uh, where everybody has lost someone. I hope by at least telling their story, we can have some understanding of it. The longer I'm gone, the longer it takes me to adjust being back. It usually takes me three weeks to start feeling human again. Now, unless you're a soldier, unless you're someone who has spent time witnessing this, it's very difficult to, conceptual, to, to, to understand or even feel what Holly's saying. So give it your best shot. You do a great job in the book, but for the folks listening, what do you mean by that, to start feeling human again? I think so much of it for me coming back and, and there's a guilt associated with that. There's this extreme guilt that I, I still struggle with in the sense that I know that I can come and I can go. I'm an Australian and an American. And so I have this sort of privilege of when I want to leave, I can. And I, I look at the people that are stuck in these situations and they have to endure it day in and day out and get through and, and they can't ever leave. And there is nowhere for them to go and they're in the belly of the beast. And I just think that is, you know, extraordinary, shows extraordinary resilience on their part, but is also deeply tragic at the same time. So coming back, I'm feeling a lot of sense of guilt I'm, I guess I'm pining for when you're in these war zones, you create very fast relationships with people and with my fixes that I have, which are, are people we as journalists uh, hire on the ground. They're usually another local journalist or someone that can help us with translation, logistics, and, and, uh, and they become often like family to me. And you create these very 
tight bonds very fast. So part of me really sort of pines for my family and, and my life in, in the US is, is, is probably a lot more of a lonely life than it is yeah. when I'm working in a war zone because I'm surrounded by people who, who all they want to do is protect you and take care of you. And it's, it's a really a guilty but extraordinary feeling to just have these people that are so hospitable that will give you uh, the last orange they have in their basket because they're so grateful that somebody wants to come in and to tell their story and is prepared to sacrifice their own lives for that. And I've always I felt very honored. Uh, to to be welcomed into their homes so I think there's a part of it's almost a homesickness mm. and there's just mm. a part of of you being on the New York subway or this sort of ultra reality that it's so it's so fascinating how different you know within a space of a 15-hour flight your life can be um, I remember one occasion being in Iraq in, in Tilafra and just in digging up mass graves and then rushing to drive back through Mosul to get back on a plane. And so I went from, from digging up these mass graves of, the, of these bodies that had been you know, lying in, in a, a sewerage for seven months to suddenly I was back in New York City in, in a cab and all these people. And I found my first thing I was doing was uh, on my phone figuring out when I was going to make a trip to Yemen. So it's, it's sort of, a, you become so, and I, Addictive isn't the right word because I think there's a lot of uh, stereotypes around it, but it's more, I'm definitely not an adrenaline junkie. I don't, I don't find the mili- sort of the bang bang aspect of it to be the most interesting or compelling part for me. It's the human stories. And I, I sort of crave that. And I crave, there's almost a simplicity to being in a war zone where your focus really is on the people and surviving. And then when you come back to real life, you're confronted with real life problems and even though they they pale in comparison to a war zone, uh, they can compound and feel a lot more stressful. The bills and the rent and the subway and the work hours and the socializing. And I think there, there is a, a beauty to the simplicity when when you're working, uh, even in a complicated place like Iraq. But would you say that it's the feeling of, I guess, freedom? Do you feel free? when you go to some of these places? Is there liberty in these places? To a degree. And again, it depends on the places. Um, I wouldn't say there's a feeling of liberty, but I think when you're in your purpose in life, and that's where I always felt that that I was in my purpose, I think. And so there is a sense of, of calmness because I think, again, it goes back to this idea. I often find myself, when I am, when I am at home in the US, kind of fighting myself in some way and fighting that fire inside me that mm. wants to to do good and, and to try to bring awareness to some of the darkness and, and bring some light to that. And so I think there's a part of me that's always fighting and trying to do that here. And so I, I, I do work with a lot of NGOs and Syrian burn children and things that are really important to try to, to tame those flames, I guess. But when I'm working in these places, I feel very much that that is you know, it sounds cliche, but that is is my calling. And so there is a sense of calmness that comes with that, even when you are in a precarious situation. I know that that is my decision. I know that nobody forced me to do that, that I made that decision to do that because I believe that that was, you know, my role uh, in this chapter of my life to do that. And so well, I think that, that that's a calming feeling. That brings a lot of peace when you know you have your purpose. And I think mm-hmm. that's, um, yeah, I don't think it's adrenaline. I think you, 
you found what you were called to do and uh, you do it boldly and it's a much needed um, uh, avocation that you're dedicating your life to and especially when you're putting your life also in harm's way so that others can uh, hopefully improve things and uh, bring the world around to a little more a better place because the world is a very very rough place and i think that's something that here in america we're shielded from that uh, we have everyone has problems nobody has a problem free life but because we have freedom we have liberty uh, sometimes we live in a relatively peaceful place i think it's a wonderful hemisphere uh, a wonderful country and um, sometimes we lose sight of that that there's a world out there and people who want to do a lot of bad things to americans However, tell us a little bit about those soldiers that, you, that you've met on this journey, because you've, you've probably met a lot of fantastic soldiers, not just from the States, but from all over the world who are out there who probably think a lot the way you do, and they rarely uh, get the exposure that uh, uh, folks uh, out here get when you do the sort of reporting, for example. Absolutely. So yeah, I've spent a lot of time with the US soldiers, with the Aussies, uh, the Syrian SDF and Iraqi soldiers, Kurdish, Peshmega. Uh, so it's it's been a great honor to, to meet a lot of them. I I will say I, I, in the beginning, the Iraqi soldiers, obviously, it was quite, um, quite concerning when they abandoned their weapons and left when ISIS invaded mm -hmm. Mosul in the summer of 2014. But I have to say, over the course of the years that I spent there, watching a lot of uh, them sort of learn to, to take back their country and have, you know, sacrificed so much in that process. And by the end of it, I, I saw very different, I saw very different men. I saw people that wanted to fight for Iraq and had the capacity and an incredible experience at that point to do so. And I think that was that was sort of an uplifting moment for me to sort of watch that trajectory and a certain sense of pride over that four years come into fruition that I didn't see in the beginning that really stuck with me toward the end. Um, and then of course, the, the Peshmerga have always been uh, extremely patriotic to the idea of Kurdistan. And so for them, uh, there really was no, no question about what they were fighting for. And they were committed from day one to, to fight for, the, for their land and for this idea of independence that is yet to come. Amen. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it is very different uh, dynamics, but I think, you know, the key in many, many times, and again, I've spent time in Yemen and other places when soldiers don't know what they're fighting for, they have mm. no reason to fight and they will never succeed. If, the idea behind what they're fighting for is very clear. The mission is very clear to them and the willingness is there. You're going to see a lot different when it comes to, to their results. So I know I shouldn't be asking you about politics, but you opened that door and I need to ask you, was it worth it? You know, it's a big debate here in the States. Uh, and some of us from the, on the conservative side of the aisle didn't support the whole notion of going into the do nation building. And mm. um, in fact, when you kind of think back, some experts argue that Christians, for example, um, have not fared very well after the liberation of Iraq and it's empowered that, that, that country that has not been mentioned during the whole podcast, Iran. Mm. Um, do you think it's been, I mean, you saw this close up for a long time and you were throughout the region at a very critical phase in history. Was 
it worth it? So I'll caveat my answer by saying with Iraq, obviously we all know Saddam Hussein was a, a brutal man and I'm definitely somebody who, right. who always wants to stand up for people's right, not to live under a dictatorship. And that's why I'll always support uh, the Syrians who, who started what was a peaceful revolution and, and Saddam did abhor abhorrent things to the Kurds, especially with the chemical attacks and things like that. So they definitely benefited from his demise. But looking at the scale of where the country is right now in terms of its uh, fractious nature, the fighting, the corruption, and just, I guess, the sheer costs and the number of lives lost, not only American lives, but we've got NATO troops and, and Iraqis themselves. And, you know, if it was, I guess, a stable and, and prosperous nation now, I would think very differently. But, I mean, I have to err on the side that, no, it wasn't. It wasn't worth the cost for us to go in and the human lives that were lost as a result. I think that's not to say that there couldn't have been a way to remove Saddam or to negotiate a way for Saddam to step down or to somehow, you know, the thing with the Middle East is there always has to be this dignity factor involved. And I say right. the same thing with Assad. Um, it's shocking to me, obviously, that he's there. And I hope that there's going to be some push at some point to get this, this war criminal out of, of Damascus. But you can't just take people out without some shred of dignity left on their part. And I think that the way that that was done was was not uh, setting Iraq on the right foot uh, for a kind of a prosperous future. And then we really failed to acknowledge the way that, you know, Shias who had felt very minimalized for so long suddenly had the power and that they were going to take things in a complete other direction and persecute the Sunnis and create this whole, uh, you know, ripple effect that eventually led to, to ISIS again. So I really think that, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't the smartest policy decision. But second to that, what I see in a lot of countries, including Afghanistan and other places, is the, I guess, the willing, unwillingness to really look at and stamp out the government corruption. And I think a lot of the terrorist groups, we have this idea that it's all religious extremism, but Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes if you are going through a checkpoint and you're forced to pay a bribe every single time just to go to work and you're a poor farmer, you're going to get annoyed enough at some point and join an insurgency like the Taliban or like Al-Qaeda or something else. And that's not necessarily out of a religious allegiance to that, but it's because right. your own government is failing to, to take care of you. And I think we can do a better job at really clamping out some of that uh, I guess, government corruption and hopefully um, getting closer to the root of a lot of these causes rather than just treating the symptoms. When, when you would talk to soldiers out there about the, the struggles and the fights and the, the mission, did you sense there was, uh, I, I mean, I know they serve proudly, that we all know, but did you all, do you also think that they felt that, hey, what are we doing here, especially toward the end? You mean the Americans? Yes, the Americans, yeah. You know, I, I don't, I think one thing I will give uh, President Trump credit for was that he did make the mission very clear to, to the U.S. and to the generals that were on the ground was the mission was to territorially defeat ISIS. Hmm. And so I think the mission was actually clear. And I think that's why they were able to, to sort of push ahead a schedule and clean out Mosul and Raqqa and a lot of those places quickly. I guess a lot of foreign policy uh, insiders will debate 
you know, should we be looking at Assad? Should we be looking at the uh, Iranian-backed militias? Should, you know, all these other factors. But I think that wasn't Trump's mandate. Trump had a singular mandate, and that was to take out ISIS. And therefore, I think it made it very clear on the ground, you know, whether you agreed that that should have been the only mandate or not, that was the mandate. And I think that enabled a, a fairly swift success in that sense. What do you hope as we, um, we got a few more minutes left and I wanted to talk some more about your book, but didn't have enough time. But what's your hope when people read this book, Only Cry for the Living? What do you hope they take away from it? And what what's next for you when, as far as book writing is concerned, if anything? So I just really wanted to give people that on the ground understanding. I wanted to take them into the battlefield, I guess, with me and really meet the ordinary people, the Yazidis who'd survived sex slavery, the old men who'd been tortured and come back to, to tell their tale, the different religious groups. And I mean, mm. Iraq is just, it's a patchwork of not just the ones we hear about, the Christians and the Yazidis, but there's the different groups of the Shabek and the Turkmen and the Khaki and the Baha'i, like there's just so many, it's, it's incredible. And so I wanted to teach people about some of, of those minorities and really just, again, give people a micro understanding of what war does to people and, and tell it from that very human level and from every side of the conflict, because there's interviews with terrorists in there, there's interviews with uh, each army, the US, different uh, foreign players. And I just, I wanted to create sort of a comprehensive picture that wasn't going to be a laborious policy read. So I just, I really want to enrich people's understanding so that when we do make these decisions to go into places, we understand the consequences uh, in a very sort of holistic aspect. Um, and in terms of writing next, I, my head is spinning with a thousand projects that I'm, I'm working on at mm. the moment. Um, but I really want to dive into, uh, and hopefully my next book, which will take some time, but I really want to dive into the psychology of, of how these people survive. And the, the fascinating aspect to me in war is the resiliency that people have. And I talk to people that have just been through the most terrific things that I just cannot even begin to wrap my head around in terms of how they've been tortured or treated. And, and the fact that they can get through it and, and survive and live to tell their tale, I really want to, I guess, get a deeper understanding of what people draw upon in those times? Is it family? Is it faith? And how do you overcome, I guess, the worst of what humans can do to each other? And I, I kind of want to, I guess, paint that as a little bit more of a, it sounds strange, but an uplifting story, because I think we can all learn a lot from, from very ordinary people who have lived through extraordinary things. You know, one of the most remarkable things I have found working with former political prisoners, and even with uh, people who've been brutally tortured in places like Iran, Cuba, Nicaragua, and some other places, is the universality of it. Uh, the, the, the men and women who go through that sort of trauma, one, when you're locked up for no reason other than you have a blue passport, you know, you happen to be an American or God forbid, you know, you, 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 you could have been picked up because you were a journalist and a woman in that part of the world. And so, you know, it could have been some really horrible things could have happened and they didn't, but it's a universality. It's this connection that all these men and women have or people who've seen that sort of trauma or mm -hmm. seen that sort of pain that connects them somehow. And it's something that 
uh, needs to be told uh, because I think many times people were, especially back in the 70s and this, this before you, but uh, the 70s and people just didn't talk about this sort of thing. I mean, if you were a hostage, people just didn't talk about it. You wouldn't file lawsuits, for example, to exact justice, even though it's not ever going to fill the gap, the justice gap. But there's a lot of mechanisms, a lot of tools and storytelling is it can be very cathartic for people. It can help not only make sense of something really horrible, but also bring witness and help in that justice cycle. So the fact mm -hmm. that, um, and that they're all connected, by the way, it's just, it, it doesn't matter the languages or the part of the, any part of the world that they've been in China. I know politi former political prisoners from China, uh, they, they all have this bond and a trauma that speaks, they speak to one another. And there's a lot of organizations popping up now, especially one here in Washington called Hostage Alliance Worldwide. And you have uh, former hostages from many different backgrounds and countries coming together to do exactly what you're talking about, which is to talk about their experience, but also help their fellow brothers and sisters that are still in these horrible places. And again, the only reason these people are there is because they happen to be American, Australians, by the way, there's several, mm. uh, uh, Brits, um, Austrians, uh, a lot of Iranians, of course, in the case of Iran. This, you know, the, the process you go through for writing, as we, we're going to wind up in a second, but if you could just hang on for a few more minutes, because I, I wanted to, I wanted folks to listen to some of this. Why is storytelling for you uh, so important in being able, because the way you wrote the book, this, this, this last book you wrote, the characters almost kind of connect back to one another. It's kind of hard to explain how you do it, but you have to read the book, folks, to understand what I'm talking about. But why is, why is that so important in how you tell these very difficult uh, stories in a way that's not unpleasant because you, have mm. called, you haven't sanitized it, but you've also uh, told it in a way that makes you want to keep reading it. And why is it so important, you think, the way you've done it? I think, I mean, there's not too many of us that are going to sort of sit down and read 400 pages of something that's a fairly dry, uh, again, sanitized report. So what I wanted to do, it really just came from, I, I had a pile of notebooks that I'd, I'd taken overseas with me and I just would scroll and I'm very old school like that. I don't often take, record a lot of my interviews. I sit there, I interact, I take notes and, you know, we'll often pay really close attention to detail and I think that's one thing about being a writer is you want to pay attention to the you know the, the symbols the, the faces what they're wearing how they say things the tempo and and the colors that they wear and and just it's those kind of tiny things that that can paint a much bigger picture for me and so obviously the most important thing is if I'm going to to try to share some of these experiences I want people to feel engaged and feel part of that experience themselves and so I, I guess I took a sort of a creative nonfiction approach to it uh, where you could sort of feel like you were watching a movie or, or almost reading a, a fiction book but yet what you were reading was was very real and very happening and and that is the method I guess that I've developed uh, as a writer is a way to to tell a story that is confronting but yet keeping the reader engaged and, and and part of it we all want to be part of the story we want to feel like we're in the middle of it we want to understand what the colors of the sky are what the smells are the looks on people's faces and so that's the approach that I took that I I hope will 
will keep people uh, continuing to turn the page. Well, you did that. You accomplished that and, and, and a lot more. So we ask everybody, Holly, who joined us on the podcast, if you're talking to folks here, um, your, your fellow Americans, but also to our friends up on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, why does any of this, I think you've told us why it matters, but so we don't have to get into that. What would you like to see happen? Let's say in the case of the Yazidis, if there was one thing that people should do that we're not doing here in Washington, DC, and the solutions are not all here. Thank mm -hmm. God they're not all here. That would be in big trouble. But if there's one thing that the Congress is not doing or that the Biden administration is not doing yet, even though they haven't been there 100 days, but this is a continuity. It's not a Biden or Trump issue. It's a continuity, a government issue. And some of these human rights issues continue, especially when there's Americans being held hostage, for example. What's this one thing that you'd love to see happen? So there are two things. Obviously, what the Yazidis have been through is is and still going through. There are many, many thousands still missing. Uh, two things I think that the US can do to support the community. One is there are a lot of concerns that a lot of Yazidi children, uh, a lot of boys who were sort of taken and, and you know forced into becoming child soldiers and essentially brainwashed away from their Yazidi identity and now being held at a lot of these jails uh, in Baghdad and, and the south of Iraq. And that is concerning for the Yazidi community because uh, I know a lot of them have said that they can't get into the jails, they can't get the DNA, they can't prove that these children are Yazidis because they've been brainwashed into, into thinking that they're some sort of jihadist. So I think that the US can help uh, support the Yazidi community and support uh, different uh, factions of the KRG who are trying to, to get some of those DNA samples. And similarly, a lot of the women and girls that were also kidnapped, again, have been brainwashed, they've been renamed, they've been given Arabic names, and a lot of them have actually been uh, taken um, into Turkey and other countries as part of, I guess, uh, a sort of an ISIS family or a family that, you know, somewhat sympathetic to or coming from those areas. And so they have these new identities, so it's very hard to track them down. And so I think uh, if the U.S. can, you know, send a special envoy or send somebody that can support uh, the Yazidis and, and the kidnapped, of office, uh, kidnapped affairs, which is in Dahuk, um, they definitely need help in, in trying to track down and identify a lot of the, the girls and boys that have uh, have been given these new identities because a lot of them are still alive and they're, they're living these different lives. And that's it's uh, it's really sad to me that that's you know, still going on. And that just triggers reminding me of something, Holly, that I, there's an important position at the State Department, uh, the ambassador at large for global criminal justice. Um, may have They may call something else now, but it's an important post and it deals with that cycle, you know, the, the end of the justice cycle, the hardest, frankly, part of the justice cycle, which is accountability and holding perpetrators to account. Mm. One of the things the Biden administration could do, if any of my friends are listening, and I'm a broken record when it comes to this, appoint a former litigator or a current litigator, somebody who's actually been in a courtroom, uh, not just a law professor or an academic or, I mean, nothing against my academic friends, but these, these men, these perpetrators, men and women have to be held to account for what they've done to these people and others. And I think we need somebody in that position that has actually tried cases and hold, held, held perpetrators to account. So 
And you can't that? have peace without accountability. We can't all wave white flags and say, oh, it's over now, everybody be friends. It just is not going to work like it's that. Never, it's a vicious it's cycle. Never. And I had hope for the Yazidis, frankly, that they would have, um, you know, the one thing I find lacking, we have a lot of laws. We don't need more laws. We don't need more lawyers. Um, I think what we lack is political will. I think mm-hmm. we need a tribunal, international tribunal. In fact, I, I, I say that with having thought about this quite a bit. It's not something that we should do lightly. But if you study closely what's happened to these people and the mechanisms that are in place, for example, in Iraq to deal with this, um, I, I have my doubts if, if the justice cycle will work. I mean, there's cases cropping up in Germany now, uh, Yazidi cases. And, but this is for a community like this to heal and move on. First, you have to stop what's happening. And there's a lot of things that are still happening that haven't been addressed. We have great copy from folks like Holly uh, McKay, who documented so much of this. And I hope fellow lawyers and policymakers will read it, all 450 pages. That, what, that's what you're getting paid to do. So you should read this book. But also come up with a lasting mechanism. And it's not going to be the ICC. The ICC, frankly, can't do this sort of thing for, for legal reasons, too, by the way, not just mm. political reasons. But you have to. This is the hard work. It, it may take a very long time, but I think you have to do it. If not, whatever men and women died for and what, you know, the, the sacrifices folks like you make, uh, they, they, we have to take that into consideration when we're putting this together moving forward. And for transitional justice, finally, uh, I think mm-hmm. a tribunal would work better. Uh, still, there's thing, bad things happening in that part of the world, as you know, Holly. So uh, there's going to take some time. But I want to thank you. I could keep going, but I'm being told enough <laughs> by my, my folks here. Uh, I know you're busy. You're out there promoting a book. Holly McKay, journalist, foreign policy expert, war crimes investigator. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. It's yeah. been an honor. It's been a pleasure to have you here and uh, you're welcome back whenever, if you want to tell your story to tell a new one, we have a lot of story ideas for you. So um, I'd love to anytime. I'd love <laughs> especially, to. especially hostages. I think the, uh, you do a great job uh, talking to some of these former hostages. We'd love you to meet some of them. If you have time. I would love that. Absolutely. Great. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Okay. Hold on. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.